Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 35 through verse 45. God's holy word from the New Testament, Mark 10, beginning in verse 35. God's word. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized by the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. To be thick-headed, stubborn, a slow learner, These are things that we don't want to be true about ourselves generally. Indeed, we regularly deny them when we're accused of being so. I'm not thick-headed. Joe is. We will admit some stubbornness, but we'll color it positive. I'm not stubborn. My ideas are just correct. Or, for to be a slow learner, we say never. You're just a bad teacher. Indeed, we disavow such attributes because, in part, we know how infuriating they are in others. Your boss is so difficult that if your boss wasn't so difficult, the job would be already finished. If your teenager stopped being obstinate, there would be no problem. Your marriage would be lovely if your spouse wasn't so stubborn. Yet, when it comes to headstrong stubbornness, We're not very good at self-assessment. What we see in the mirror is not necessarily how others see us. Thus, to drive us a touch crazy, Mark reveals the incorrigible slowness of the disciples as a window into our own hearts and to magnify Christ's salvation for us. So as our Lord was talking about how with humans it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God— Last, in the last passage, Peter then stuck his foot in it, for he claimed to have done the unfeasible to win him a spot in the kingdom. Jesus, though, was gentle with him as he pointed him away from works to faith. In fact, Jesus set forth the only work that earns the kingdom, his death and resurrection. Thus, from the middle of chapter 8, Our Lord has been driving home the point that entering the kingdom is not about works, our faith is not a competition, and our piety is not self-promotion for glory. 
Well, you would think that after repeating this same lesson a dozen times or so from various angles, that the disciples would start to understand. But alas, such is a fool's hope. For now, James and John pull a Peter, or rather they outdo Peter. These two brothers, these sons of thunder, as they were called earlier, blunder into the conversation. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is bold. They request a blank check from Jesus. Whatever we desire, give it to us. Be our genie to grant all our wishes. Their language actually echoes that of Herod when he offered his daughter back in chapter 6, when he said, whatever you desire, up to half of my kingdom, I will do for you. As you remember, this was thoughtless recklessness, and it now surfaces in James and John. They charge in with careless extravagance. Here are my desires, meet them. And yet it gets worse. For one, their tone sounds a little more like a demand than a request. You must do it, Jesus. And two, they are being a touch manipulative. No, James and John do not specify a thing. Rather, they try to get Jesus to commit to give them anything. They want the blank check before disclosing the price. This is like when someone says to you, Will you keep a secret and promise to tell no one? And they do this before they tell you your secret. That's a bit manipulative. They want to say, but you've promised. Thus the brothers are being presumptuous, sly, and over the top. Of course, you cannot trick our Lord, so he cuts through their little scheme what you want. He is no genie to grant thoughtless prayer requests. And the extravagance of James and John is worse than we expected. Grant us to sit at your right and left hand in your glory. Indeed, we cringe. Is lightning about to strike these sons of thunder? They ask to be second and third in his kingdom behind him. The king is number one, the right hand is second, and the third is the left hand. This is a wish for the highest positions of glory and power... And they underscore, in your glory, Jesus. Now, is this an earthly kingdom? Does this include a heavenly, eternal glory? Well, we're not entirely sure what the brothers understand about Christ's glory. But for Mark, this is a shameless demand for eternal glories. Also, to make such a petition assumes they feel deserving. They're worthy. They've earned these two seats. The lust for personal glory and the presumption of the brothers here is atmospheric. Finally, they have the gall to ask to sit. In the Old Testament, standing at the right and left hand of the Lord in heaven was the norm for angels. For standing was the ready position to serve and do the Lord's bidding. But to sit is the authority to bark orders to be waited upon, to have your will performed by the lowly servants below you. They want power and prestige served by luxury. 
This prayer is a hot chili pepper. Surely Jesus is about to breathe fire. But his patience with his thick-headed disciples is cool and calm. He says, you do not know what you're asking. He treats them like a four-year-old who just asked to drive the car or a six-year-old who wishes to be president. You have no idea what you're asking for. And so Jesus tries to bring them up to speed. Can you drink my cup? Can you endure my baptism? Now, these are basically synonymous. To drink the cup in the Old Testament is a metaphor for experiencing the lot or God's lot for your life of suffering. And baptism is to suffer through a watery ordeal, to be inundated and flooded by trials and tribulations. Yet these have both a general use and a technical one. First, they mean, on a general level, they mean that you suffer for or under God, even to the point of death. So on this general or first level, Jesus merely asked him, can you suffer like I'm going to suffer? But on the technical level, the heat gets turned up. Here, the cup is the goblet of the Lord's wrath on the day of the Lord. This is the full measure of fury and justice the foaming wine of eternal punishment. Likewise, the grand Old Testament baptisms were the floodwaters and the Red Sea, which were symbols of the final judgment. So on the upper level, Jesus asked these two brothers if they can die under the full weight of judgment of the last day. For ultimately, this is the cost to sit in the seats at the right and left hand. As is to be expected, though, the brothers can hear only the frequency of the general level. With the confidence of a fool, they brag, we can do it. No problem. We got this, Jesus. So much zeal wasted on fools. They have more zeal than brains. Thus, Jesus speaks to them appropriately. He predicts that he will suffer and or he predicts that they will suffer and be persecuted for him. So on the first general level, the brothers will endure much pain for Jesus, even to the point of being martyred for James. Yet their tribulations for Christ are not meritorious. It does not rise to the higher technical level for to sit at the right hand and the left hand is not for Christ to decide. Instead, these seats are for those prepared for them, which refers to election. In the eternal covenant of redemption, it was the task of the Father to elect and the Son to die for the elect. And for the seats of honor to be a matter of election means they're about grace, not works. The Father elects the saints by grace alone and not by any works to be performed by them. Thus, in the kingdom of heaven, any positions of honor are determined not by our obedience or our deeds of suffering for the gospel, but they're distributed by the Father's electing grace. Thus, Jesus squashes our competing for honor by obedience, and he does so by highlighting election. As before, Jesus is trying to get it through the thick head of his disciples that salvation is not about our works, 
but it rests in the work of God. The disciples, though, are not very permeable. The membranes of their minds resist the osmosis of our Lord's truth. Thus, a little birdie tells the other ten apostles what the sons of thunder did, and they're just a bit upset. Rather, they're furious at the brothers. You wonder if they're close close to fisticuffs here. What ignited their anger, though, is not completely transparent. The ten might be ticked at the two brothers for being bold and brazen with their desires. Maybe they're appalled at James and John's arrogance. They could be rightly upset for the brothers stepping out of line. And yet we get the suspicion that their steam comes from the fire of jealousy. They're mad at James and John because they beat him to the prayer. Why didn't I think of this first? I can outdo those Zebedee boys. Either way, the testy temper tantrums of the ten only betray competition and passion for the honor of authority. So once again, Jesus moves to focus them on himself and away from themselves. By this teaching, he now turns their heads and says, look at me and stop measuring yourself in your in the mirror over against each other. And to do so, he brings up the ways of the world. This is just the way things are. This is the status quo, the self-evidence of gravity. You know about those dignified rulers, the great ones of the Gentiles? These are your run-of-the-mill emperors and kings, the duchesses and barons, your grand dukes and queen mothers. These are the noble elites who possess or gain the prerogative to rule and reign. And they operate by lording it over the people. They exercise their authority by dominating and controlling. Indeed, lords and ladies excel at distinguishing themselves as superior and imposing inferiority on everyone else. And yet by this verse, our Lord highlights both the goal of worldly authority and its means or methods. As a goal, these czars and earls target the self-exaltate or the, to secure exaltation of self. That is, they lord it over the people to promote their own well-being, to solidify their their empire, and to win permanent fame. And this covers rulers both in their tyrannical form and their more noble expressions. A tyrant will say, "I am the state." An upright governor will seek the prosperity of the people and the good of the commonwealth, but he still wants to be the heroic head of the state. Therefore, Jesus is not just thinking about despots here, but he has in mind earthly rulers in general. Even a good president has an ego that needs to make an indelible mark in the history books. But in addition to the goal, these verbs communicate the methods of authority. They reign by means of forceful and violent control. Kings dominate. Queens are domineering. By means of powerful coercion, they subdue people into obedience and service. They are like animal tamers who with whip and shout, with treats and praise, domesticate the public 
to heal, sit, and rule over. Dungeon and taxation, flogging and banishment, uh, conscription and the hangman's noose, these are their ways. But kings can control with honey just as good or better as with the sword. For loyal service, lords promise fame and fortune. Emperors boast about what a great glory it is to give your life for them. Die for me, and your name will never be forgotten. Grand dukes employ poet laureates to spread the propaganda. It is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. Kings laud self-sacrifice in others so that it might go better for them. And such is the way of the world. Whether you live in a democracy, a monarchy, or under communism, the goals and methods of lords and ladies don't vary that much. And this worldly status quo doesn't seem to bother our Lord. He isn't so much criticizing, nor is he lobbying for world change. Rather, he states this matter-of-factly to contrast how different it should be for us in the church. Not so among you. He looks the apostles in the eyes. This shall not be the way for you as the church. Indeed, the great among you will be your servant. First place goes to the slave of all. Indeed, he repeats the point he's made like five times in the last two chapters. Those who find favor in God's eyes are those who serve others. A person of the other, this is great in the Lord's eyes, while person for self falls in last place. As well as serving all in, is a faith and love of non-competition. Packing orders, cliques, and in-groups are repulsive to it. For a serving love cherishes the well-being of everyone else equally. Yet Jesus forwards our serving piety here to focus on him. He calls us to be a servant because it's not about us. Thus, the motive for our service is rooted in him. As he says, for the Son of Man came to, or came not to be served, but to serve. Before we serve, Christ served. But this line should give off an unexpected aroma. What's that strange smell? For Daniel 7, which is the primary Old Testament text about the Son of Man, reads quite differently. There, in verse 14, the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. He receives dominion, glory, and a kingdom. Then the peoples from every nation, state, and language shall serve him. Daniel states it clearly. The Son of Man came to be served by the nations. Our Lord, though, flips this on its head. Not so quick. Before the Son of Man gets his glory and service, he must first serve. He came to be slave for all. Now, a king serving his people is not a completely uncommon idea. You can find this in the Old Testament and even some in Greco-Roman society. But again, this royal service is often fueled by self-interest. 
Serve the people and they will serve you. Love and they will love you in return. By service, good kings do so to preserve their lives and reigns. Our Lord's service, though, is of another kind. He serves to become a ransom. Now, a ransom is basically a payment. The the ransom is a price paid to redeem something. In the Old Testament, ransoms were paid to free you from slavery, debt, death, God's wrath, trouble, and from the legal penalties of court. You could also metaphorically be ransomed from your enemies, and the kinsman, kinsman redeemer married the brother's widow to free her from barrenness, as Boaz did Ruth. Even more so, God ransomed or redeemed Israel from Egypt, the house of bondage. So Jesus states that his service will be a ransom for many. In The contrast here is one for many. The Son of Man is the one ransom for many people. Again, it's not of unheard of in the ancient world that one would die for the good of others. But the norm for kings was the opposite. Emperors are those who send thousands, yea, millions to their death for their own life and fame. Examples of this cover world history. For a pet war, a king will send his legions to perish in battle while he eats figs and bacon on silk. Untold numbers have died for the egos of kings. But not our king. Jesus came as one to serve the many. He also he alone paid the ransom to redeem the majority. Jesus was the slave for the good of many. He forfeit himself, he regarded himself as unimportant to gain the blessing of a host of people, even you. He was the king, the son of God. You were the pauper outlaw but he washed your feet. And yet there's one more remarkable here. In the Old Testament, ransoms were paid with money. Now in the Exodus, God ransomed Israel with his power, with his might. But nearly all the other ransoms were monetary transactions. With shekels, you ransomed the firstborn, slaves, the land, brothers, a life from justice. Jesus, though, has no silver and gold in his pockets, but he pays by giving his life. He supplies the ransom payment in his blood. He lays down the value of his life to redeem you. And a ransom paid in blood is a sacrifice that propitiates wrath and pays the debts of sin. A blood ransom for many is Jesus serving you as your substitutionary sacrifice to redeem you from condemnation and death. Beloved saints, you were ransomed with the precious life of the Son of God for an eternal redemption. This is how much God, Jesus, loved you. Though he is God and equal to God, Jesus became your slave to serve you with his life given as a ransom on the cross. 
Hence, Jesus clarifies the cup in store for him. This cup, his cup, is truly the day of the Lord, cup of wrath. It is the baptism of the waters of hell in order to save you from the coming wrath and the pains of hell forever. And being redeemed by such a serving love, how can we then compete? Indeed, in light of the marvelous and perfect service of Christ, the brothers of Zebedee, their passion for glory is gross, and our service to one another is a small thing. Being filled with the grace of Christ to serve one another like our Savior is a wonderful joy and blessing. Therefore, let us rejoice and sing of Christ's work for us in that Jesus did not send you to your death for his fame, but he laid down his life as an atoning ransom so that you might taste his resurrected glory. And being ransomed by Christ's love, we then now have the privilege to love Jesus and to love each other even more than our own lives. Amen. Let us pray.